Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. I know that I keep saying this, but this episode drops before November 3rd, so make a plan to vote and do it. Usual caveats about eligibility to vote in the U.S., of course. Today we continue our journey with Odysseus. Uh, We haven't seen much of his journey yet, so that word doesn't feel quite right. Yeah, it will be, really, but not yet. Odysseus is still in Phaeacia. Uh, You may recall that book seven ends with everyone going to bed, and book eight begins the following morning. Alcinous and Odysseus wake up and take a stroll down to the assembly grounds where they sit on a bench and hang out. Meanwhile, Athena disguises herself as Alcinous and goes through the town, calling everyone to the assembly grounds, which you have to wonder. Um, is anyone surprised to find that Alcinous is already there? Um, yeah, I don't know. Whether or not they were, though, everyone is assembled. Athena does her frequent magic making uh, to make Odysseus look younger and hotter than he really is. And then she, well, it's not really clear if she goes home or stays and watches her or what. Um, she'll, she'll come back later in the book, but at this exact moment, I don't know where she goes. <laughs> but the real Alkinos is definitely the only one that everyone can see now. He stands up and announces that his new BFF, whose name he still doesn't know, has asked for a ride home, and it's only right for them to provide one. He calls for their fastest ship to be prepared and a crew of 52 young but experienced sailors to be assembled. Once that's done, everyone should go to the palace for a feast. Um, but that only gives work to some people, so everyone else t- goes to start partying now. Alcinous calls for the bard, uh, Demodocus, to entertain them with a song or three. The group splits, with the young men going off to prepare a ship while the old men go off to the palace to prepare a banquet. Demodocus and his sighted guide enter. Um, Yes, as we frequently see with bards, Demodocus is blind, so he always has a guide of some sort with him. He eats and drinks before picking up his harp to sing his first song. It's about that famous battle between Odysseus and Achilles. You know the one. You don't? Yeah, this is the only source we have that mentions a fight between Odysseus and Achilles. And frankly, Homer doesn't really go into much detail about why they were fighting. Pretty much it just, like, it tells this, you know, he sings a song about this fight. And, I mean, for the purpose of the Odyssey, it doesn't really matter. um, Because it's, you know, not... It signifies nothing. Um, it, what matters? The the reason, the only reason the song is important is that it is about about Odysseus and Achilles, and and hearing when when he hears the story about himself and his dead friend, Odysseus responds as you would expect him to. He cries, um, and he tries to hide it, but Alcinous notices and calls for a change of events. Instead of sitting around and listening to music, they should have some sport, and they do. They go back to the assembly grounds for a little track and field and wrestling and boxing. And no, I think everything else falls under the heading of track and field. Um, Odysseus watches, enjoying his role as spectator, at least until Prince Laudamus notes that their guest is clearly no weakling and would probably be pretty good at the games too. 
Odysseus still says that he'd prefer to just watch. He's only there as a suppliant who is begging a ride home, not as a contestant. But then uh, Euryalos, whose name translates to something like Sea Reach or Broad Sea, um, all of the young men in Phaeacia have names that translate to something related to the sea or sailing. Um, and even though Fitzgerald, the translation I'm using, uh, Fitzgerald transliterates most names, he translates all of the Phaeacian names into English, all of these these young men's names, because otherwise it, the section where they're named would make no sense to it. An English speaker doesn't speak Greek. Um, but I digress. Uh, I, I will call him Eurylos because your translation might use a different name for him than my translation does. Eurylos taunts him, saying that he's probably spent too much time at sea to learn the fine art of sportsmanship. Well, Odysseus simply can't let that stand. He tells Eurylos that he may be strong, but clearly he's not that bright. Odysseus then jumps up, throwing off his cloak, and hurls a discus farther than anyone else. Athena joins the fun by disguising herself as a random Phaeacian and calling out that even a blind man could see that Odysseus's discus went the farthest and declaring Odysseus the winner of that event. Odysseus then says he's ready to compete in every event and he'll defeat everyone too. Well, except for Laodimus, because it would be simply be quite rude to fight against one's host and especially to beat them. And Maybe he won't do so well at the foot, re- foot races either, given that he spent so many years trying to sail home and he still has his sea legs. Everyone stares at this speech. Alcinous finally speaks. He says that Odysseus is justified in his response to how Eurylos had spoken to him. I mean, the Phaeacians aren't perfect at everything, which isn't exactly what he told Odysseus earlier, if you were paying attention. But Alcinous's speech doesn't end there, so maybe Odysseus doesn't get a chance to catch the contradiction. Alcinous says that they should leave off the games and have some more music and dancing. Demodocus is brought out and he sings another song. This time he tells the story of how Ares and Aphrodite were having a fling, even though Aphrodite was married to Hephaestus. Hephaestus, having learned of his wife's infidelity, built a trap and then said he was going to his forge on Lemnos. Ares and Aphrodite took the opportunity to spend a little time together in Aphrodite and Hephaestus's marriage bed, which, of course, is where Hephaestus had laid his trap. A golden net fell down on the couple, and the more they tried to free themselves, the more tightly the net bound them. Hephaestus hears that the trap has sprung and flies back to Olympus, where he calls out to Zeus that he'll only release them if he can get a divorce. All the other gods come to see the show, laughing at Aphrodite and Ares and joking about how they would happily trade places with Ares if it meant they could lie with Aphrodite. Charming. Well, all except for Poseidon. He doesn't think it's funny. And he tells Hephaestus to release them, swearing that he'll make sure Hephaestus gets what what he's asked for. Hephaestus concedes. As soon as they're free, the lovers flee, Ares to Thrace and Aphrodite to Cyprus, where the graces attend her. Everyone enjoys the song, and then the best dancers do their thing, and then Elkinous calls for everyone to give gifts to Odysseus, new clothes and gold, and he tells Eurylos that he needs to toss in something special to make amends for having been so rude to their guest. Eurylos does so, giving a very fancy sword to Odysseus and apologizing for his prior behavior. Odysseus says thank you most politely. Alcinous then tells Aridi to fetch a chest in which to pack all of these gifts, and that maybe they should draw a bath for their guest, too. Aridi instructs her maids, 
In the Fitzgerald translation, <laughs> he describes it as a hip bath. And if your brain works at all like mine, you immediately start wondering if he tripped into it. But how can you trip and slip into a hip bath? But this is not a podcast about Stephen Sondheim. That was a reference to a little midnight music if your brain doesn't work like mine. So I'll try to get back on topic. <laughs> on his way back to the banquet, Odysseus runs into Nausicaa, who has been... Well, who knows where she's been since we last saw her back in book six. She wishes him well and asks that he remember her. He promises that he will never forget the princess who saved his life. Then he returns to his seat next to Elkinoas. There's more eating and drinking. Odysseus sends a nice piece of pork to Demodocus, which is a different take on sending a drink to the pianist. Um, the end of Sunday's Blues, anyone? No, just me? He also sends his thanks and asks for another song. In this third song, Demodocus tells of the Trojan horse. He sings about the men hiding inside and the attack that came after the horse was pulled inside the city walls. He sings about Menelaus and Odysseus, and Odysseus cries. As before, he tries to hide it, but Elkinoas sees and calls for the singing to stop. And then, finally, after all of this whining and dining and singing and dancing and track and field, Alkinoas comments that no one is nameless and asks his guest to share his name and where he's from, which is kind of a detail that the Phaeacian sailors are going to need to help him get home. He asks his guest to provide all of the details of his journey and why all of the songs of Troy make him cry. Did one of his kinsmen or in-laws die there? Or maybe one of his friends? Surely he can answer this question. And that's where book eight ends. Yes, it ends with the question, leaving us on a bit of a cliffhanger as to exactly how Odysseus will choose to answer. This is an interesting book in part because it has so many stories within stories. Although I suppose we'll see that much of this epic will turn out to be a story within a story. Um, but in the three songs, we get two stories of the Trojan War and one myth. Uh, I suppose the first and third song are at least indirectly related to the story of the Odyssey. Um, as I noted, there is no other source that tells the, of a fight between Achilles and Odysseus, and this source simply provides um, no details. Uh, so whatever the fight is, Agamemnon gets a kick out of it, um, and the memory makes Odysseus cry, which makes sense. Um, we know that memories are reformed every time we bring them up, so it makes sense that this memory of Achilles would make Odysseus sad. Um, but whether the events were happy... Um, when they originally occurred or infuriating or what, we don't know because this is all that we know of the story. The third song uh, is about the Trojan horse. I, I don't think I really went into much detail on that. Um, and it's it's a bit more detailed, but it's also a story that's told elsewhere. Um, although some of those sources have not survived the ages. There used to be a whole Trojan War epic cycle, um, but the Iliad and the Odyssey are the only epics from it to have survived intact. Um, the third song, though, is somewhat or somewhat random. So it's it's the second 
song, but it's the third one I'm talking about. Sorry to make that too confusing. Um, so it's it's random, although it does sort of create a mirror to Odysseus. Um, Odysseus is known for his wits, and Hephaestus uses his wits to outsmart Aphrodite and Ares. But mostly, it as far as the story itself, it it has nothing to do with anything in the Odyssey. Um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't merit discussion. What stood out to me on this reread, and I will tell you that um, by the time I got my BA, so just between high school and college, I had read the Odyssey at least five times by that point. Um, and I may have read it a few times since then. So I, I've, I have read the Odyssey a lot of times. Um, I, I, so I, but this didn't, I, I didn't notice this before. What stood out to me this time is that none of the goddesses join in the ogling of the ensnared Aphrodite and Ares. Um, something that you may have heard discussed, that you may hear discussed today when it comes to, say, um, movie critiques is the male gaze as opposed to the female gaze. And a common problem is that the way women appear on film um, is in a way that is designed to appeal to the male gaze and not in a way that is realistic to how many women um, and women, female presenting individuals, see themselves. And it seems like something similar is happening here. The goddesses know what's going on, and they choose not to participate. I mean, it's bad enough for Aphrodite to be ensnared with her lover. But if that weren't degrading enough, the gods make it worse by commenting on how happy they would be to trade places with Ares. So it seems as though the goddesses can empathize with Aphrodite and choose not to pile on. But at the same time, this means they are choosing not to intercede on her behalf. I mean, which isn't, I suppose it's not really shocking because Aphrodite isn't particularly popular among the women of Olympus. Um, But it should make us think about our actions today. Um, When is it appropriate to step away. So a film that really has this horrible male gaze perspective, we can choose just not to watch it. You know, a protest is not giving money for that particular piece of, I'll call it art. Um, So when do we choose to step back? And when do we choose to intercede? And which is the right action? And, And it's obviously, it's all situational. Um... And it's all intersectional. So it depends on who you are and your many identities as to even when it's necessarily safe for you to intercede. So I can't, I can't give you a, a right or wrong answer to that because it all depends. I was educated by Jesuits, can you tell? <laughs> but it is something that this book of the Odyssey reminds us of that we need to think about What do our actions say? When do we choose to act? When do we choose not to act? Um, Before I close this episode, I do want to spend a little more time on the weird place that Phaeacia is. We've already seen that they aren't quite right, at least from the point of view of a good ancient Greek. Um, The Greek gaze, could we call it maybe? Anyway, and in book eight, we get another example of how Phaeacia is not Greece. Alcinous calls for everyone to give gifts to Odysseus. So yes, there is this whole guest gift concept, but guest gifts come from the host. 
Alcinous is the host. So it makes sense for him to give gifts to Odysseus, but that's not what happens. Everyone gives gifts, like at a wedding. And we've already seen that relationships in Phaeacia are not quite the same as in Greece. Plus, we know that Elkinoas wishes Odysseus would stay and marry Nausicaa. And for the record, at this point, the Phaeacians still don't know Odysseus's name. So what exactly is going on here? I'd love to hear your thoughts on all of this and more. Like, what has Nausicaa been up to? Why isn't she at the party? Pop over to the blog and join the discussion. Triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL is in the show notes and maybe a link too. On Monday, we'll read Plautus' Casina. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.